Chapter 12 of The Romance of Modern Astronomy. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Sharon Vock. The Romance of Modern Astronomy by Hector McPherson. Chapter 12 The Boundaries of the Solar System. Saturn was the most distant world known to the ancients. They regarded its orbit as the boundary of the planetary system, and it was not until the year 1781 that astronomers learned that the solar system extended to a much greater distance than the orbit of Saturn. Of the two distant planets Uranus and Neptune, little is known, but the story of their discovery is one of the most interesting chapters in the history of astronomy. To the genius and skill of William Herschel, we owe the discovery of the planet Uranus. The record of this discovery is so bound up with the life story of the discoverer that it is impossible to separate them. That life story is a record of endless perseverance, boundless energy, and undying enthusiasm. The most striking of all discoveries, however, was nothing less than that of a new planet revolving beyond the orbit of Saturn, the first new member of the solar system discovered within the memory of man. On March the 13th, 1781, while observing the stars in the constellation Gemini, he, in his own words, quote, perceived one that appeared visibly larger than the rest, end quote. Comparing it with other stars in the vicinity and, quote, finding it to be so much larger than either of them, he suspected it to be a comet, end quote. For some time, it was believed to be one of these objects, but when its orbit had been calculated by mathematical astronomers, it soon became apparent that, instead of revolving in a very long ellipse as most comets do, it moved in an orbit, almost circular. There was no doubt, therefore, that the German musician had discovered not a comet, but a new planet, and had doubled by this discovery the diameter of the solar system. The scientific world was amazed at the discovery. It had never even suspected that an unknown orb revolved beyond the orbit of Saturn. It was, however, even more surprising to find that Uranus had often been seen and catalogued as an ordinary star, no fewer, indeed, than 17 times. Flamsteed, the first astronomer royal of England, observed Uranus four times in different positions and did not notice the difference of place. A French astronomer, Le Monnier, narrowly escaped discovering the planet in 1769 and would certainly have done so but for the careless and slovenly way in which he jotted down his observations. Herschel proposed to name the new planet Georgium Sidus, the star of George, after his patron, George III. This title naturally found no favour on the continent. A French astronomer suggested the name Herschel, after the discoverer himself, while Bode of Berlin suggested Uranus, in keeping with the custom of naming the planets after the Greek and Roman divinities. All these names were in use for a considerable time, but at length the name Uranus prevailed and is now universally adopted. The discovery of Uranus was a remarkable achievement, but it led to one still more remarkable, the detection of a planet still farther removed from the Sun. 
After Uranus had been duly recognized as a member of the Sun's family of planets, its orbit was calculated. In making these calculations, astronomers utilized the early observations of Uranus made by the observers who had failed to notice its difference from an ordinary star. The observations were far from useless, for although the observers had failed to make the discovery which was within their grasp, they had measured carefully the positions of their supposed star. This was all that mathematicians needed to enable them to calculate the planet's orbit with a further approach to accuracy. Bouvard, a French astronomer, published tables giving the planet's positions in the future. But as Uranus did not conform to the orbit which had been laid down for it, Bouvard concluded that there must be some mistake in the earlier observations. Accordingly, in 1821, he rejected these altogether and published a new series of tables, utilizing only the observations made since Herschel's time. Again, however, the planet was not in the predicted place. The error was very minute, it is true. As the late Miss Clerk points out, quote, If the theoretical and the real Uranus had been placed side by side in the sky, they would have seemed to the sharpest eye to form a single body. End quote. In an exact science like astronomy, however, an error like this is intolerable and is evidence of some flaw in the theory. Some astronomers began to doubt the universality of the law of gravitation on which all these calculations were founded, and to ask if the law did not break down at the boundaries of the solar system. Gradually, the idea dawned on astronomers that perhaps another planet, at a greater distance from the Sun, was attracting Uranus from the predicted path. The problem was, how could this be tested? It was no easy matter to search through thousands of stars along the zodiacal constellations to find a planet. Such a task would be impossible. The only hope of detecting the planet lay in calculating its position from its influence on Uranus. Here was a mighty problem involving great mathematical powers. One of the greatest calculators of the day resolved to grapple with the question, but he died before the discovery was made. Another astronomer intended to investigate the matter, but found it beyond his powers. At length, Two investigators in England and France respectively took up the question independently and quite unknown to each other. Adams, a student at the University of Cambridge, noted in his diary in 1841 his resolve to investigate, quote, the irregularities in the motions of Uranus, which are as yet unaccounted for in order to find whether they may be attributed to the action of an undiscovered planet beyond it. And, if possible thence to determine the elements of its orbit approximately, which would lead probably to its discovery." End quote. In 1843, after taking his degree at Cambridge, he commenced his investigation, which occupied him for two years. On October the 21st, 1845, he called at Greenwich Observatory and left a paper containing the elements, position, orbit, etc. of the supposed planet and approximately fixing its position in the heavens, expecting that the Astronomer Royal of England, Sir George Airy, would institute a search for the body. Airy, however, was not particularly interested in this question. He was, above all, what may be called a practical astronomer, and he paid little attention to the paper which the young Cambridge graduate left for his consideration. Adams, too, did not seem particularly anxious to have a search instituted, 
and the result was that his paper remained in obscurity until it was too late. In 1845, Le Verrier, one of the rising astronomers of France, also undertook to solve the problem, and he also assigned the position in the heavens of the disturbing planet in the constellation Aquarius. Sir George Airy happened to see one of the papers in which Le Verrier had published his conclusions. He was impressed by the fact that the two independent investigators had reached the same result, and accordingly, he wrote to the director of the observatory at Cambridge, requesting him to search the region of the heavens to which Adam's calculations pointed. The Cambridge astronomer commenced a search, but he had no star maps and had to chart the region of the heavens before he could search for the planet. At length, Le Verrier, having completed his investigations, wrote to Enke, director of the Berlin Observatory, requesting him to search for the planet. Enke at once set two of his assistants, Darest and Gal, on the search, with the result that in a few hours, by the aid of some recently published star maps, Gal perceived, almost exactly in the position indicated by Le Verrier, a strange star, which was soon identified as the disturber of the motions of Uranus. Thus was the great discovery accomplished, and another planet added to the solar system. The name of the newly found celestial object was more easily settled than that of Herschel's planet. The following extract from the reminiscences of Sir Henry Holland, the well-known physician, tells us of the naming of this distant world. After referring to his visits to foreign observatories, undertaken owing to his great interest in astronomy, he says, quote, That which most strongly clings to my memory is an evening I passed with Enke and Gal in the observatory of Berlin, some ten or twelve days after the discovery of the planet on this very spot, and when every night's observations of its motions had still an especial value in denoting the elements of its orbit. I had casually heard of the discovery at Bremen, and lost no time in hurrying on to Berlin. The night in question was one of floating clouds, gradually growing into cumuli, and hour after hour passed away without sight of the planet, which had just come to our knowledge by so wonderful a method of predictive research. Frustrated in this main point, it was some consolation to stay and converse with Enke in his own observatory, one signalized by so many discoveries, the stillness and the darkness of the place, broken only by the ticking of the astronomical clock which, as the unfailing interpreter of the celestial times and motions, has a sort of living existence to the astronomer. Among other things discussed while thus sitting together in a sort of tremulous impatience was the name to be given to the new planet. Enke told me that he had thought of Vulcan, but deemed it right to remit the choice to Le Verrier, then supposed the sole indicator of the planet and its place in the heavens, adding that he expected Le Verrier's answer by the first post. Not an hour had elapsed before a knock at the door of the observatory announced the letter expected. Enke read it aloud, and, coming to the passage where Le Verrier proposed the name of Neptune, exclaimed, Solas den Namen Neptun sein. It was a midnight scene not easily to be forgotten. A royal baptism, with its long array of titles, would ill compare with this simple naming of the remote and solitary planet thus wonderfully discovered. End quote. Thus closes the record of a remarkable discovery, 
perhaps the most remarkable ever made in astronomy, the discovery of Neptune was not only a magnificent attack on the secrets of nature, but a glorious triumph of the human intellect. The honour of the discovery is now given equally to Adams and Le Verrier, although for some time controversy raged as to which of the two deserved most glory. If Le Verrier's results were slightly more accurate than those of Adams, the latter investigator was earlier with his calculations. In this chapter, much space has been given to the history of these two discoveries. In the case of the well-known planets, we know nothing of their discovery, but we have considerable knowledge of their physical condition. In the case of the distant worlds, we know practically nothing of their physical condition, while the story of the two discoveries, the second, the outcome of the first, forms one of the most fascinating chapters in the history of science. Dusky bands resembling those of Jupiter were noticed on the disk of Uranus in 1883 by the late Professor Young. Some astronomers consider that the planet rotates its axis in about 10 hours, but this has not been confirmed by other observers. However, various facts tend to show that its period of rotation must be short. Uranus, so far as is known, is in a condition of great heat. The spectroscope has shown that free hydrogen exists in the Uranian atmosphere, and this indicates the existence of a temperature high enough to separate water into its constituent elements. Observations at the Lowell Observatory a few years ago indicated the existence in the planet's atmosphere of the element helium. Uranus has four satellites, known as Ariel, Umbriel, Titania, and Oberon. Of these, the two last named were discovered by Sir William Herschel in 1787. Ariel was glimpsed by the astronomer Lassell on 14th September 1847, and Umbriel by Otto Struve a few weeks later, their existence being finally confirmed by Lassell's observations a few years later. The satellites are very faint. Ariel, the nearest satellite, revolves around Uranus in two days, 12 hours, at a mean distance of 124,000 miles. Umbriel revolves in four days, three hours, at a mean distance of 173,000 miles. Titania, at a mean distance of 285,000 miles, revolves in eight days, 16 hours, while Oberon, at a mean distance of 381,000 miles, requires 13 days, 11 hours to circle round its primary. Nothing is known of the physical condition of these satellites. A remarkable fact connected with them is that they revolve almost at right angles to the plane of the ecliptic, in which most of the planets and satellites move. It is quite possible that there may be other satellites of Uranus yet to be discovered. If little is known of Uranus, less is known of Neptune. The two worlds are about the same size and seem to have many points in common, the spectrum of Neptune has been investigated by various observers, who have found it to resemble closely that of Uranus. In 1883, Mr. Maxwell Hall, an astronomer in Jamaica, noticed certain variations of brightness, which he believed indicated that the planet rotated on its axis in about eight hours, but this observation has not been confirmed. Neptune has one satellite, so far as is known. It was discovered by Lassell on 10th October 1846, only a fortnight after the planet itself was detected. 
It is situated at a distance of 223,000 miles from its primary, round which it moves in five days, 21 hours, 8 minutes. Like the Uranian moons, its motion is retrograde. It must be very large to be visible at all at a distance so vast. Some astronomers consider that it is the largest satellite in the solar system. Probably, it is over 3,000 miles in diameter. We have now described the outermost planet of the solar system, revolving in solitary loneliness. But is the orbit of Neptune really the frontier of the Sun's domain? Are there planets beyond Neptune? Astronomical science has not yet answered these questions. The existence of one planet at least has been strongly suspected, and at the present time, 1910, Professor W. H. Pickering is undertaking a search for a world beyond Neptune, the existence of which he believes to be indicated by its influence on the motion of certain comets. It may, however, be many years before such a planet, if it exists, is detected. We have now come to the end of a description of the solar system, proceeding outwards from the Sun. But the planets and their satellites are not the only bodies in the solar system. There exists another class of celestial objects, the cometary and meteoric bodies. To the consideration of these, the next few chapters will be devoted. End of chapter 12